session number four today, page 61, saving and investing. And this lesson is going to talk a good bit about how to save and invest, what to do in order to save and invest. But before we look at those notes and what this lesson says about what to do in order to save and invest, we have to cover a more important subject than that. There really is a more important subject always than what you do. No matter what seminar, no matter what conference you go to, no matter what lesson you're listening to, there is always a question that's more important than the what and how question. And that one is, the why? Why am I doing this? Why should I follow the instructions that are going to be given here or in whatever class, seminar you might be taking about what to do in order to accomplish a particular thing? The, the question behind that, though, the first question that always needs to be answered is, why do I do this? Before you develop skills at doing something, you first want to answer the question, why should I put the time and effort into it in the first place? And let me try to, uh, let me try to beat on that a bit to give you an illustration so that you understand why I say that. You know, you can go to seminars on any topic under the sun. You can go to a marriage seminar. And that seminar can teach you skills related to marriage. And those skills that you learn in that seminar related to marriage may be good and true expressions of God's common grace, even if that seminar is put on, sponsored, and taught by somebody who's not a follower of Christ. They could still teach you some skills that might help you in your marriage. Or you could go to a parenting conference, parenting seminar, same thing. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be taught by somebody who's a follower of Jesus. And they've learned some things, maybe the hard way, by books they've read, studies they've done, they've done some research, and they can tell you some things to do to improve your skills at parenting. Or communication. We need work on communication. And so, go to a seminar on how to communicate better. And you guys can relate to this in your work. Your work has seminars, conferences all the time to help you be a better teacher, help you be a better nurse, help you be, right? And you can learn skills there. But there's still this larger question. Why? And if you don't answer the why question, you will have skills, hear this, you will have skills that could be used in the wrong direction. You could acquire skills that are used toward the wrong end. Let me illustrate that. Often I get couples that will come and say, our marriage is on the rocks, we're having trouble, help us. And so we sit down and, you know, I might say, so what do you think your problem is? And almost without exception, the wife speaks up first. And she says, we don't communicate. We have trouble communicating. He does not know how to communicate. So we're here for you to teach him how to communicate. He needs skills at communicating. He needs to know what to do in order to talk to me and in order to listen to me so that we communicate. That's what we need. Now, could, do they have to have me as a pastor and a minister of the gospel 
Do they necessarily have to have me for that? Aren't there other people who can teach you skills at how to communicate? There are. Now, I can do that too. Truth of the matter is, the Bible has some stuff to say about communicating and talking and listening and all of that. So I can, I can teach those skills, but if I only teach the skills, that guy, wife, might use those in the wrong direction. And here's what I tell her. I say, uh, so tell me some more about how you guys interact. And the more uh, I'm told, I find out things like, for instance, maybe this guy is a control freak. He likes to control everything. He likes to control their schedule. He likes to control the money. He likes to control the kids. He's a control freak. Okay, so you want me to teach this guy better skills at communicating so he's more adept at controlling you. Right? He can get better at communicating, but how will he use that skill? He'll use that skill toward some misdirection, some wrong end, some wrong goal. So the larger question is not what we do or even how we do it. The first question is always, why am I doing this? Why do I need to learn to communicate better? Well, the Bible's answer to that is, is because you place others above yourself. You sacrifice, you give yourself. Love is giving for the benefit of another. Because you love her, you do this. And you love her according to what the Bible says. Ah, that's a different deal. You mean it's not so I can control better. Exactly, it's not. It's for this. This is why you do it, because you love her. You say, what's that got to do with me being broke and coming to your stupid money seminar? Well, here's what it has to do with it. We're going to talk about saving and investing. And we can tell you how to do that. The lesson tells you how to do that. But the truth is, a lot of people can tell you how to do that. The first question is, why do I do it? Why do I save so that I have? For what purpose? Just like the guy who learns better communication skills but uses them, uses them toward ill ends to be a better controller, can't you see, don't you agree, that you can save, accumulate, but then use what you have saved and accumulate not for the purpose for which God gave? the money to begin with? The why question is really important, isn't it? So before we look at how to save and invest, what we do in order to save and invest, we've got to ask the question, why do I, why do, I do this? So let's do that. Let's ask ourselves, why do we do this? Well, one reason is obvious. I need to manage my resources, including my money, better so that I can meet my needs and the needs of my family. So I need some skills at doing that so that I can meet my needs and those of my family. That's certainly true. It's certainly something God says and certainly something you all would agree with. Meet the needs of your family. Now I'm going to list a few others here in just a, just a bit. But let's go with that one. Meet the needs of your family. So I've got to know how to use my money so that I can do that. But you need to define needs carefully. Would you all agree that too often the word need has become equivalent to the word want? And you learned this when you were a kid, and your kids are learning it very early as well, aren't they? I need that $150 pair of gym shoes. No, you don't. 
You might want a $150 pair of gym shoes, but you don't need a $150 pair. And we might even figure out a way for you to save and do all the stuff in order for you to get your $150 pair. But do not come and tell me you need a $150 pair of shoes because you're misusing the word need. So when we talk about having in order to meet our family's needs, we're not talking about having to meet all of our family's wants. And so what are needs according to the Bible? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. Here's what, here's what the Lord says. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So really, that's it? Those are my needs. Food and, and clothing. How about shelter? Well, when Paul writes that, He's just giving a few of the basic necessities, needs of life. Certainly, he would include shelter. Paul, who wrote it, sought to shelter himself, as a matter of fact. And so, food and shelter and clothing, these are the kinds of things that Jesus mentions. In Matthew chapter 6, you remember, do not worry. What you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, you all remember that? He says, here's why you don't worry, because... In the King James, it says the Gentiles pursue. They, it's what it says in the King James, Matthew 6. They run, the Gentiles run after these things. Well, who are the Gentiles? It's the people outside of the community of God. Here's what Matthew, Jesus is saying, as recorded by Matthew. The pagans, the people who don't know God do that. They run after all of that stuff. They're most concerned about that stuff. But you, verse 33, Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things. What are these things in that context? The food and the clothing and the necessities will be added to you. So Jesus is saying there's a larger purpose. Yes, you need those things, these things. So one reason that you save and you invest and you learn skill what to do with your money and how to do it is so that you can meet the needs of yourself and your family. But you and I have to define need the way the Bible defines it, not the way the culture defines it. That's one. Why else? Why else would the Bible say, I need to have money acquired by managing it properly, saving it, and investing it? Why would the Bible want me to do something like that? Yes, meet the needs of myself and my family, but why else? I'm asking you now. Somebody give me a reason that God would want me to have money beyond the basic needs of life. What's another reason? Okay, okay. Lynn said to give back to the Lord. I can barely hear because we got that thing going, but give back to the Lord. And if I could word it this way, to, to use it for the Lord's purposes, to use it for the Lord's mission. I'm seeing heads nod. I'm, I'm glad. This always makes me feel good when heads are nodding. Sometimes the heads are nodding because they're falling asleep. But those were agreement nods. And, and wouldn't, would you all agree that the Lord teaches that one of the reasons for you to then have money is for you to use that money for his purpose, for his mission, right? Yeah, good. And then what else? So for God's mission, why else would I want to have 
money available to be used on what or on who? Yes, Tammy? There you go. Help other people. So I need it for my basic needs and my family's needs, for pursuit of the mission that the Lord has given us, but also to help other people. Now, you might just jot this passage down. It's Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 28. Ephesians 4.28. You don't have to look it up, but you're welcome to do so. Ephesians 4.28. And those of you looking it up on an electronic device, we don't want to hear the beep. Okay. See, I was given the benefit of the doubt that this guy's looking up the verse on his electronic device. So what's the score? <laughs> verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with his own hands. Now, just stop there. Most of you are reading on, so you, you see the sort of the punchline there, but you could have a lot of things that are so that. You don't, you don't steal, you work, because stealing is one of the Ten Commandments and it's wrong. So here's why. Because it's wrong. So don't steal and get an honest job. But it doesn't stop there. Stealing is wrong. And it says you must work. And then it could say, so that you can meet the needs of your family. The Bible teaches that. So that. A number of things, but notice what it does say. That he may have something to share with those in need. So why do I save and invest? Not just what do I have to do in order to save and invest, and now i got this extra money, I still have to determine what I'm going to do with it. Well, what do I do with it? I meet the needs of my family. I give to the Lord's mission, and I give to the needs of others. So, from the outset, as we look at these skills then, with regard to how to do this, you need to understand that if you follow these instructions, you will have more money. But you have to answer the question, why am I pursuing more money? And the Bible gives you the answer to the why question. Meet the needs of my family, give to the advance of the Lord's mission, and to have in order to give to others. You go, where does my retirement in Hawaii fit? That's got to be in the Greek somewhere. And obviously everybody makes their own, has to make their own decisions. But those are the priorities that the Lord gives in his word. That's how he wants us to use the sustenance, the material goods that he has blessed us with and that we have purposely managed better so that we have more, more not to blow, more not to use for selfish ends, more to use for the things God says. Needs, the mission, others. Now, if you're going to buy into what I'm saying, then you, like got to, you have to be a Christian. And so now we get into biblical counsel. Now it's not just a seminar you went to. Now you're getting what actually I can give you that those guys can't which is a perspective from God on why we do this, not just what and how. And if you're going to do this, one, you've got to be a Christian, and in two, you've got to listen to people like, say, Rush Limbaugh with like a real grain of salt. 
Now, I know that's heretical. I know that Rush is going to be canonized when he dies. He will be Saint Rush. But, um, you know, and, and, you know, Rush is entertaining and Rush says, you know, some funny stuff and even some right stuff, in my opinion, sometimes. But he says some really bad stuff from a Christian standpoint. Truth is, I don't really listen to him. But I heard him the other day. And he's on this rant, a rant, about the virtue of pursuing self-interest, which I've heard him do before. Selfishness is a good thing, thus saith Rush. I'm, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. He says it a lot. Pursue self-interest. He's read a book. Rush got a book that I have by a gal named Ayn Rand, A-Y-N, Rand. And here's the name of the book, The Virtue of Selfishness. That's the name of the book. And Rush read it, and Rush paraphrases it a lot. And Ayn Rand was an atheist. So, sure, it's virtuous to be selfish if you're an atheist. But not if you're a Christian. Rush says in this rant the other day that he really despises the idea of sacrifice. I'm telling you, that's what he said. Well, how do you be a Christian and follow a notion that says, I despise the idea of sacrifice? And so, okay, I'm off the Rush thing, and for sake of equal time, I'll beat on some liberal in a couple weeks, okay? But in all seriousness, you can't follow that philosophy and at the same time do what God says. You cannot say, it's my self-interest, it's my selfishness. God says, you have in order to give and to use for my purposes. Now, save and invest. Page 61. Here's the perfect investment. The perfect investment is one where you never lose. There's no risk. The value never goes down. It's instantly convertible to cash. It always gives you the maximum yield. That's the perfect investment. And you notice the first statement, top of page 61, there is no such thing as a perfect investment. So we need to understand that from the beginning. Book of Proverbs, as our brother McCune told us, is one of the wisdom books, and that's why Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, wisdom books, are quoted throughout this material because we want wisdom, skillful application of the revelation of God to all of life as it meets us in the plan of God. That was the way you defined it, wasn't it? It's a really good definition. Proverbs says this, A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will, go, uh, will not go unpunished. The New Living Translation of that same verse says, The trustworthy will get a rich reward. The person who wants to get rich quick will only get into trouble. So that yields a principle. You see the principle there? The world says get rich quick. The Bible says get rich slow. So what you're going to learn then in these pages is a slow approach toward the accumulation of, of money. It's not get rich quick. And the Bible counsels often against the notion of getting rich quick. And it's amazing how many times we can say and we can read in the papers examples of this and we still fall for it. If it sounds too good to be true, what? It is. But how many times do we fall for that? And so amazingly, 
you know, Bernard Madoff made off with a bunch of money from people who are supposed to know the deal. And they get involved in a Ponzi scheme that is returning them 20% consistently or more. Any fool, okay, would know something's askew. If the average decent investment's getting 8 or 10% and you're getting 20 and 30 for years, something's going wrong here. But we don't want to ask any questions because Bernie's writing some checks until the house of cards comes down. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. Because we want to get rich quick. And the Bible counsels against that and rather says, take a slow, methodical approach. Luke chapter 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? And so, you don't just jump into it as the idea. This is Jesus speaking, but... You sit back and you say, what are we trying to accomplish? What are the resources that we have available in order to do it? And then let's create a timeline in order to get from here to there, which is that second principle. Take a long-term perspective on all of your investment decisions. The long-term, the long-haul, and all the steps that are involved in between. Ecclesiastes 5. Solomon writes, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. And the principle that comes out of that is that you can lose. And so, because you can lose, because you don't control the circumstances that could result in loss, you try to take steps in order to mitigate against that. That's what things like insurance are. That's why you have a fund available for things that are going to happen so that it doesn't wipe you out so that you have nothing for yourself and nothing to pass on to others. That yields a principle. The world's priority is spend and consume. The Bible's priority is save and invest first. And then here's another passage from Proverbs chapter 6 about the ant that Brother McCune mentioned. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions when, in the summer, gathers its food at harvest. And the world's perspective is, time is the enemy, so I need it now, I want it now. The biblical perspective is, time is a tool. And so we start saving now for the future, things we know that are going to come up in the future, retirement, kids' college, whatever it is, we know those are going to come up, and so we plan for them now like the ant does in the summer, planning for what he knows is going to come in the fall. And then Ecclesiastes 11. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. The world says, you know, I can buy it low and I can sell high. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to keep going up. The Bible says you need to diversify because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, how many times have you heard people say, you know, the American dream... You know, every generation wants their kid to have it better. How many times have you heard that? To have it better than, than their old man. I want my kids to better have it better than I do. And, you know, I, every time I've heard that, I've just gone, you know, that's got to run out at some point. I mean, I'm no genius, but if you live in a world of limited resources, then at some point that runs out. Not everybody has it better than the people before them. But yet we say it all the time. I can buy low and I can sell high and it'll always go up. And that's the mentality that led so many people to keep saying, I can borrow and it'll never go down. It'll never go down. And guess what? 
It not only has gone down, it's plummeted, right? All right, so let's look at how you do this. How is wealth acquired? Wealth is typically created by a career or vocation over a long time frame. So you fill in at the top of page 62 the word created. It's typically created over a long time frame. Now, it's good that we have you filling in the word created because that goes against the notion that many of us have that, that wealth is, is created by inheritance. You, you grew up in a wealthy family. Now, it does happen that way. You got the Rockefellers, you got the DuPonts, you know, you got the JP Morgans, you got those people. And so that's what we think of. And I didn't grow up in a family like that, and so you have money because you grew up in a family like that, and I didn't, and that's the way most of us look at it. So there's the class resentment and all that. But the truth of the matter is, most people who have wealth didn't acquire it through their ancestors. They did it through a slow, methodical, long-term approach of taking a little and it resulted in a lot. And that's why the word created as opposed to inherited. It's typically created by a career or vocation over a long time frame. And it is, secondly, top of page 62, preserved. So it's created by I get a job, I have a career, and then I take the income that comes from that and I use it in a way that it is preserved, diversifying what I have. Now, why? Why do I diversify? It says because it's impossible to predict the future of any investment. And so one may go bad, but if you have several of them, then chances are not all of them go bad at the same time. Now, if you do that, if you take a little, it can be made a lot over a long period of time. And how do you know this? That's on page 62 and 63. And we can actually look at these fairly quickly. They're pretty straightforward. On page 62, you have what's called the rule of 72. And it's explained for you there, so you don't, you don't need me. But here's the idea. You see at the bottom of the box, it gives you several examples. If you had $1,000 and the interest that you can gain from that $1,000 by putting it in some investment is 3%, then here's how the rule of 72 would work. You take the percentage, 3%, and you divide that into 72, that's 24. And here's what 24 is. That's how many years it'll take for that $1,000 to double. That's what the rule of 72 is. So you say, if I've got $1,000 and I can get 3% on it, it's going to be in 24 years, that'll be $2,000. But if I can get 6%, that's the next example, then instead of it being 24 years, in half that time, in 12 years, it will double, and in another 12 years, it will double again. So $1,000 now at 6% will, in 12 years, be 2000 and in 24, it'll be 4000 And if I got, I mean, if I got Bernie Madoff at 30%, oh, baby. But no, these are just, these are just conservative investments, 3%, 6%. If you have a, good a very good investment at 12%, you can see what happens with that with $1,000. Now, how does that happen? That's the next page, page 63. The magic of compounding. And they give you two examples on page 63. And they are shaded for you at 
So just take a decent, that's a, decent, a, a good return. It's not an outrageous return. It's not a low return, but it's not outrageously high, 8%. Okay? And you take your $1,000, and here's what happens over a number of years. And chart one at the top of page 63 says if you take a, I said $1,000, this is if you take $10,000. If you had $10,000, and at one time you put it in an 8% investment, it's over $200,000 in a, in a 40-year period. If you say, I don't have $10,000, I've only got $1,000, okay, then take the $1,000 and invest it year after year, each year $1,000, over 40 years, and this is how that'll, this is how that'll happen. 8% will become 259 at the end of the same time period. Now, the point of all that is this. You don't have to, bottom of page 63, earn a lot to make a lot if you start early. So you can take $1,000 and say, with that $1,000, I'm going to look for the long term, and according to the magic of compounding, just making conservative assumptions on a percentage rate, this is how much I can reasonably expect to have at the end of that time. Now, I hope that gives some hope for those of us who have not been managing properly. You say, where would I ever get the money to invest and have some money in 20 years? Well, you, you need $1,000. Now, guess how much $1,000 is? It's $83 a month. Do the math on $83 a month. It's about three bucks a day. So at about three bucks a day, if I can find three bucks a day in a year, I've got my $1,000. And I can start with that $1,000 doing what you see on these charts. And here's one of the reasons you need to do that, top of page 64. Because just spending everything I have, rather than saving and investing it like that, has a cost associated with it of lost opportunity. It's not just I used that $1,000 on whatever I bought with the $1,000. There's that. But there's also, I didn't use that $1,000 on this other stuff, and therefore, by using it in a less prudent way, in a more consumptive way, I've actually lost the ability to do this other thing. And that's what top of page 64 is. When you spend on consumption, it costs you not only the money, but the potential money you could have earned. Say, for example, you saved 1000 a year, 83 a month for 40 years. According to chart 2, 8%. That money would grow to 259. If, on the other hand, you spend the thousand each year, or 83 each month, after 40 years, it would cost you not just 40,000, but also the 259,000 that you could have had. You say, "Well, that's beautiful, but I don't have any money, and I didn't start early. So what am I supposed to do about that? So that I have some money to use, yes, for my needs, my family's needs." the biblical mission, and the needs of others. What do I do? Well, you've got to prioritize decisions. And here they are. Five steps. First is you've got to get rid of the credit cards. Pay off the credit cards. Credit cards are killing people. And you may well be in that situation. You're paying 12 to 21% on your credit card and the, reason that, and the reason the credit card company wants to give you lots of credit 
The reason you're always amazed when you get that letter and they go, you're entitled to an additional $10,000. You go, I can't believe it. I am so much in the hole. How could I be? I must, they must really like me. They do like you. They love you. Because you're paying 12 to 21, but they're using that for the magic of compounding that you could be using it for. They love you. So you've got to get out of the game of putting it in their pocket and start putting it in your pocket. The only way to do that is to pay off the credit cards. Set aside step two, then money for an emergency fund, an emergency fund. Biblical principle, stuff happens that we can't control. We need money for that. If you don't have an emergency fund, guess where you'll go when those emergencies, not if those emergencies happen, when they happen, guess what you'll do? You'll put it on what? The credit card. Save money, thirdly, for major purchases. So with a major purchase, uh, a vacation, whatever it is, instead of putting it on the credit card, we say we want to take a vacation next year or two years from now. And so we save for that ahead of time. Step four, diversify your investments to meet long-term needs. And steps four and five are where you should probably seek out somebody who knows what they're doing with this. Now, steps four and five don't matter at all unless you do steps one, two, three. You've got to do one, two, and three don't call, don't call somebody to say, help me invest my money until you get some. And the best way to get some is to follow steps one, two, and three. Then you diversify and you contact a professional. By the way, we have some of those in our own church. If you want to see our financial guys, they handle our money. Uh, Rich doesn't do this for a living, but he can direct you to people who does. Rich is our treasure. See him. Uh, he knows some people that can help you with that. Step five, begin taking calculated financial risk. But again, using the guidance of somebody who knows what they're talking about. And then quickly, we've run out of time. But the good news is, we're done. Just about. But there's a number of questions for you to ask yourself before you invest about your own motivation. I've already dealt with that at the beginning. Your motivation should not be to get rich. It should not be to use it on your own consumption. It should be to pursue the Lord's mission, to give to others, meet the needs of yourself and your family. All right. Look at page 65, though, and we'll finish. And one question I do want to point out is the last one there, just before the host tip in the box there. The last bullet above that is, how does my spouse feel about this investment? Investment. A husband and wife need to be in total unity on their investments. And so particularly husbands, you don't just go and do this without talking to your wife and being on the same page before you go and do it. Ron Blue, many of you know him as a Christian financial advisor. He tells a story of uh, being at a meeting talking to some NFL players. Some of them were retired players, but he's telling them how to handle their investments. And he says while he's talking at the back of the room, there's a lady crying. He's making this point about needing to be on the same page. He talked to her after the meeting. Her husband had won three Super Bowls. He was now retired. He had made a ton of money, but they had some investment opportunity. He said it was a surefire, whiz-bang opportunity. She was against it. They went bankrupt. And, she's, and she was weeping before, before this guy. Men, 
ladies, we need to be on the same page with how we use the money that God has given us as a family. Last point, then, we're done. Look for godly counsel, godly counsel to make your investment decisions. And that godly counsel may come from your spouse, uh, somebody else you trust, somebody who's been around the block, somebody who's got some wisdom that Dr. McCune talked about, but it may come from a Christian uh, professional as well, and I would encourage you to uh, to consider that. All right, that is it. It is 12.01. I'm pretty proud of that. We're done. See ya.